Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who is a writer, garden speaker, and correspondent for Growing a Greener World TV, and was a guest with us a couple of weeks ago, and you had so many fantastic ideas, we couldn't do it all in one hour. Good morning, Bree. How's your garden growing? Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's delightful. You know, it's actually very fall-like now. You didn't get any frost overnight? No frost yet, so you know it's coming. Yeah, they were talking about frost for us, but there was a little bit on the on the roof of the houses, but nothing on the ground, fortunately, this morning, since I still have peppers and basil and stuff like that out in my garden. Now is definitely the time to start getting your major harvest in before everything melts. That's the least pleasant garden task, I think. Yeah, and, and of course people can protect the garden stuff. What are you using for protection? Well, uh, you know, at this time of year, it's actually great because it's close to Halloween. I cover a lot of things with rene or soft cloth, and it looks like I have ghosts all over the garden, <laughs> especially bergmansias, you know, that are 10, 12 foot tall. Um, oh, my, yeah. You know, when you're not having cloth every night, uh, you know, you can protect them for at least a couple more weeks. <laughs> now, in case people that don't know what rene is, let's tell them. Well, it's often sold as soft cloth. It's a lightweight material um, that it's, even if it gets wet, it doesn't necessarily put too much weight on the plant and break the stems. It's something that nurseries use to keep the temperature, you know, three or four degrees warmer underneath. And there are some, if they can't find it under the Rime name, I know that a lot of places sell it under Agrabon, and there are a couple of other ones. And they call it fleece in Europe, don't they? Yes, they do call it fleece. And they use it in abundance, at least in Denmark. Everybody has entire warehouses full of it. Um, it does allow moisture to go through, whereas, you know, plastic will actually, you know, let, let the plants really dry out and you can lose them more from dehydration than anything. Yeah, and plastic has the other disadvantage of heat goes through it fairly quickly. And yeah. even with, with the Rime, because it's a, a it's a spun bonded polyester, is it? I forget. I, I remember reading it. Back. Um, and it it hold it's got enough thickness that it holds a little bit of heat as long as you've got the ground heat, doesn't it? That's right. And you know, I found that um, especially when it's much colder, adding some containers of water will also help keep the temperature up. So. You know, even if you just have a five-gallon bucket in a, in a space, that will actually help absorb a lot of heat and release it through the night. It's an easy trick yeah. to keep the temperature up. And, and lots of milk jugs. I used to be a big fan of milk jug. I would go down to the recycling center since we didn't use very much milk, um, and I would get the jugs of milk, empty jugs, and fill them up and put some. Um, I got some black dye that they use for ponds and stuff like that. And that worked out pretty well, too. Oh, that's a great idea. And, of course, you can get even more creative. I have a friend in New Orleans, and, of course, they don't get very much frost there at all, but sometimes they get a really bad cold front. And what she does is she takes the old-fashioned Christmas lights, the old sea bulbs, yeah, and she will string those around her plants. Oh, that's a great idea. That actually releases quite a lot of heat. Yeah. I don't know how the new ones are. Um, I, so people might want to just shop the yard sales and stuff like that and see if they get the old ones. Because the new ones, of course, a lot of them are LEDs and give off very little heat. Exactly. And 
she had really good luck with the old ones, and she'd even wrap up, you know, like she had some, well, you mentioned Brugmansias, the big old angel trumpets for people that don't know the name Brugmansia, and they get, do get very tall, and they're very, very sensitive to frost, so she would wrap those up and keep them, keep them blooming through the winter. Well, so you hate to have them die to the ground because you, you lose so many flower buds that way. <laughs> yeah. And some of them, I, there's one that comes from, I think it's from Peru, that actually if you, if you don't have two years of growth on it, um, you, it won't bloom at all. And I didn't know that until I tried to grow it for five years. And then one of my friends who lives in the tropics says, well, that's why. Well, like it's always good to have an explanation, at least, so you don't feel like you're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to doing something wrong. You know, it, it really, um, especially at my age, you have permission to do a lot of things wrong, and and I enjoy it. And I enjoy letting other people know that I've done something wrong, too. I mean, it is, it is frustrating until you know. But then when you know what you've done, then you learn from it. You get that aha moment. And then you can share it with others so that they can also have an aha moment. <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you have in your garden? I saw pictures of your peppers, and I'll be putting those up on our Facebook page. What else do you have in your garden right now? Well, broccoli is finally starting to come on. I've been really jealous looking at other people's broccoli pictures. And this year I actually started my heading vegetables as early as the 4th of July, trying to get it so that I would have them now. And there's still a few weeks behind from what I've seen other people having. Uh, the broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage are definitely coming. My favorite broccoli is the uh, Romanesco, the you know the sort of large green twirling variety. And I have my whole front yard covered in those, and I'm just waiting. <laughs> those look so cool that I I really hate to even think about cutting them. You know, they were, they're really popular in Europe, and when I was in Denmark, they were served at almost every meal, and so I have all these great ideas of how I'm going to use them, and they're certainly going to be incorporated in my Thanksgiving meal, uh, because I did plant 150 plants of them this year. 150 Romanesque, <laughs> and, and you got 150 peppers, too. I do. <laughs> so uh, yesterday I invested in some very fancy vinegars, and I'm going to finish my pepper season off with pickling. You know, up to now I've been doing a lot of candying, which uh, is a great gift, even for people that uh, don't like peppers for the heat. The candying really kind of takes that down a notch, and uh, you can you, you can give them to the pretty much anybody. The pickling, uh, of course, is still going to be a little spicier. Uh, but they're so beautiful, and with fancy vinegar, it's it's a real indulgence. <laughs> do you have? Do you think the taste of the fancy vinegar is going to come through in the peppers? Well, I sure hope so. <laughs> Yesterday, I used champagne vinegar, and um, definitely the the taste and and smell of that as I was you know as I was heating it to make my brine solution is very different from. You know, traditional apple cider vinegar, uh, or even white wine vinegar, and certainly red wine vinegar. But I have an assortment of all of them, and am distinguishing them by the vinegar variety now. <laughs> we'll see. A few weeks from now, of course, they're they're all preserved uh, in a water bath, but I think they still taste best several weeks after uh, preserving. So. 
It'll be about Thanksgiving when we really start opening these jars. What are you going to be doing with all of those jars? Because I've seen well, off had dozens and dozens and dozens. You know, at this stage, I think I have more than 50 um, pints prepared. And it's my favorite thing to give to gardening friends and visitors. So as the season progresses, that's something that I bring to, you know, events. And, of course, as people visit us, no one leaves here without canned goods. <laughs> and they're so beautiful. I like to incorporate them in our fall displays. I've, I've used a nice material to kind of cover the lids and, and they look so they just look so perfect for this time of year so I have them mixed in with my fresh and dried flower arrangements throughout the house. That way they're easy access to give neighbors and friends who stop by unannounced and I can still force them to take produce home. <laughs> well in that way they get to enjoy the summer all through the winter too. That's right. Not everybody wants to take fresh produce, but when you give them something preserved, they're more inclined to use it. And so, you know, I think it's a great introduction. Maybe we'll then feel inspired to plant a couple of peppers next year and try preserving themselves. That's a good idea. I saw the pictures that you sent of uh, the fabric over the jars. Most people use a kind of a calico fabric, but yours is really outstanding and very autumnish. Where did you get well, that? It- I'm so lucky I found that at the Goodwill. <laughs> a really? Package, a package of that for a dollar at the Goodwill. And, you know, I, I primarily give these canned goods away in autumn in preparation of Thanksgiving because I, I like the idea that these friends and family members can use some of my garden for their Thanksgiving feast. And so I thought that the candy corn and the pepper motif were really kind of ideal for what I'm preserving. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's been a real treat to be able to have that motif and then incorporate it decoratively and then share it and they know that it's appropriate to be used for Thanksgiving. That's a cool idea. I never Do you shop a lot for fabric at Goodwill and other thrift stores? I do. I do. I actually, I went there with that in mind, and I was so excited. This is actually probably the middle of July when I found that material. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of textile shops around anymore uh, like there used to be. And actually, in the town that I live in, in Keyplay, Verena, we don't have a material store anymore. So I went to Goodwill thinking that I might be able to find, you know, some sort of material, even, you know, if it was a blouse or an old blanket or something and happen to find these material scraps. It's a wonderful resource. Um, Goodwill, you always can find something useful for your garden or your your house. <laughs> I find a, a lot of unusual pots and things. Back in the day when I used to do a lot of container gardens and give them away or, and sell them, um, I would get containers from their various pots and pans and would just drill holes in them or, or old colanders and things like that. And that's In fact, a fun thing last to do. time I was there, I got a colander just for that purpose. <laughs> and I have a friend that used to go in there and get all sorts of kitchen utensils, and then she would make mobiles out of them, and she sold them at the flea market for just scads of money. Oh, what a great idea! That's a, that they always have kitchen utensils. There's, yeah. And, you know, and, and it doesn't even matter she would, if they were rusty or something like that. She used, She would make something out of rust. 
Well, and then you don't feel like you can't hang it outside and enjoy it. Right. I know when I get a decorative item, sometimes I'm kind of afraid to hang it outside. And I, I cheat and I put it on the porch. But after a while, you run out of room for it, don't you? Yes, you do. And, it's it, you know, that's one thing. When you're buying gifts for gardeners, you do tend to buy things that are meant for the outside. Uh, but it's hard sometimes if they don't already have a patina to to, to make that decision. <laughs> okay, you've got a, got a point there. Um, I've been known to uh, wipe some vinegar on things just to get them to look old so that people would accept them and, and not um, not be afraid to use them like they're supposed to be. Have you ever That's tried right. I, you know, I actually love to spray vinegar on, on anything metallic just for that purpose. And I'm really fortunate to have um, a neighbor who's a retired art teacher, and she has all kinds of interesting supplies to create patina, especially on copper. So we use a lot of copper in our garden, um, especially to keep away mosquito larvae. And we we patina it immediately so that it looks authentic and green. Uh, we we you know we use uh, copper fittings for a lot of the glass flowers that we use in the garden, and um, it looks so we much more authentic. We have to take a little break right now, but I just wanted to, uh, we'll talk more about this when we come back. This is Denise Simon. 18 hours a day, I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. 
and avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, a most eclectic mix of conservative shows. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur. And we were, right before the break, we were talking about making a patina on things um, and, and doing things out of, of copper and glass. How do you find that glass works in the garden? Um, glass is amazing. Um, you know, obviously for the summer, it doesn't matter if it catches water, and it's actually great for birds and, and humming, well, hummingbirds and little insects. Um, I've been preparing all of our glass flowers now to either knob down or I'm beginning to actually fix them onto our fence uh, so that they don't collect water, but they are still a big asset in the garden. Uh, and it's just a, a lovely way to add, you know, a little bling, especially at this time of year when everything in the garden goes from being lush and tropical and tall to about 12 inches. You know, it's like this time, is the time of year when the violas, start to, to really do their thing, but they're not tall. They're, everything is at ground level. And so by adding some of these glass touches uh, throughout the garden, it keeps you looking around at a at an eye-level height. Now, you have something interesting in your garden that people might be curious about. Tell us about your fire pit. Oh, our fire pit is fantastic. You know, I actually had a friend build it as an engagement present to my husband. Because, you know, women always get a fancy ring, and well, the guys don't get much. <laughs> and so we put in this fire pit, which is uh, slightly recessed, and by accident, he made a fire, well, not a fire pit cover. He had made a living wall for me. It turned out to be the perfect size to cover our fire pit. So when we're not using it, we actually have this planted cover uh, that doubles as a living wall. When when we have a fire going, we actually have a little easel built on my clothesline. Uh, but it created so much interest. And in the summer, I planted it with seedling celosia and a dwarf basil. So it looked like fire all summer long. And now I have it mixed with red and green lettuce. Uh, so it still looks really interesting and is easy enough to keep maintained uh, in a vertical sense because this is obviously the time of year when we start having fires again. It's a wonderful place, and it's totally surrounded by all edibles. That was the design element. wanted to make sure that this space that practically everyone living in the suburbs dream of having a fire pit to kind of have that campfire atmosphere and relive their childhood. I wanted to show how you could have that in an entirely edible space. So it's surrounded by a couple of varieties of blueberries and figs and asparagus and then seasonal vegetables surrounding all of that. It looks great year-round, and, and we have seeding for eight permanently there, and more can be added. And it's just a lovely collection place for people to come uh, all times of the year, but especially in the fall when we have bonfires. Do you have anybody, when they sit around watching the bonfire, do they reach out and grab your grab a lettuce leaf, too? 
Oh, you know they do. <laughs> and at this time of year, the, the wall of figs is, is abundant. Uh, so, you know, just last night we were sitting out there and I was hogging all of the LSU purple figs that are that are reaching now almost 15 foot tall, which is shocking because last winter we got to one degree and all of the figs actually died to the ground. So this is our first, wow. our first flush of fruits this season. Well, we lost about two and a half to three feet of our figs over the winter, but um, they came back and they gave us a few figs, not as many, um, because, of course, the Asian ambrosia beetle found my fig, too, maybe because of the cold, I don't know, or maybe just because I wished for it to come and take out my crepe myrtles, and, and it came in and found my fig instead. I had a question from one of our listeners who wanted to know how to propagate a fig. Okay, well, uh, there's a couple ways. Um, probably the easiest way is to either air layer or just layer the fig, meaning you have a plant and you sort of scrape the bark and, you know, put some nice soil around it, maybe attach it with a brick or a heavy stone, and let it root in naturally that way and you can just cut it off. Um, air layering, meaning you use, um, sphagnum moss, kind of do the same thing where you scrape the bark and maybe even apply uh, a light rooting hormone and then cover the wound in sphagnum moss and then you can use tinfoil around that or they actually sell plastic devices that would fit over the stem and then you just keep it watered, you know, on a fairly regular basis and then as it roots out you can cut it off of the original plant and you have a new plant. Um, from a nursery perspective, root, uh, figs are really easy to root. I prefer softwood cuttings, and that would be done in a mist house. Generally, anytime from, uh, you know, late April, May into June, and then they're rooted by mid-July, early August, and they could actually be potted now and then go dormant naturally. Um, so depending on what kind of facility you have, uh, I think for homeowners, layering tends to be an easier way to produce the plant, and you can get a larger plant faster. But if you have a mist house, there's no reason not to take cuttings in the in the spring. I did it the hard way when I rooted mine. I, you know, of course, I read the book, and and that can get you in a lot of trouble. And it said to take cuttings in the in the winter, take dormant cuttings, and bury them. And I, I did. I buried them in my propagating bed. Just left, you know, a bud sticking up. And doggone if they didn't all root too. Well, I believe that. I think uh, the problem with dormant cuttings is that there's a lot of time that needs to pass, and not everybody will keep it watered and pay attention. Um, so I found I find that dealing with plants when they're actively growing, they propagate faster. So there's less opportunity for um, time to pass and you forget about the experiment. <laughs> well, in my case, they worked because I was so excited. I, you know, of course, I did them in February, and when spring came and little leaves came out and I tugged them and they and they actually were rooted in. I was just so happy. I just kept going over there. I, you know, this is the plant nerd in me. I kept going over there to look and make sure that they were still okay. <laughs> well, that's good to take care of them. You know, it's one thing I find uh, 
with propagating, um, people tend to get overzealous and they tug on them and pull them out and then expose those new roots to the air which they can dry out really fast and then they shove them back in and those new roots will actually break off and it's one thing in in the propagation uh, profession I always would say you know tug on them to a point where you can feel resistance but don't pull them all the way out or you're going to be starting from scratch (laughs) yeah I I learned the hard way about that Uh, my mother always used to do African violets and she taught me how to just tug on it. And one day when I was doing my own first ones, um, I ripped the roots right off of that poor little sucker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you do it once, you'll know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was a good lesson to me. I don't remember how old I was, but it it was a very good lesson. Um, And I never did that again. Now, Bree, you've mentioned that you have lots and lots of Romanescu broccoli. And one of the things that our family does every year for holidays is a broccoli loaf. Have you ever tried making a broccoli loaf? I haven't, but I'd love to hear. It is just absolutely amazing taste-wise. And this recipe goes back at least half a century. Um, And what you do is you get a pound of pork sausage, and it it depends on your taste whether you want it kind of hot or not so much. And you brown it along with half a cup of onion, and you grate in about a quarter of a teaspoon of nutmeg, and you add some salt in it. I always like to wait to add salt until um, I t- find out how salty the sausage is because, you know, sometimes the sausage itself is really salty. And that gets mixed together with some eggs. And while you're doing all this, you have your broccoli, and it's roughly you want to end up with, oh, about a pound and a half of broccoli. So, um, And you cook it, and you squeeze the water out of it, and you chop it. And, of course, I like to do the stems first because stems tend to be a little bit tougher. And then you mix all of that together. You add a little tiny bit of milk, and you put it into a loaf pan. And it's just, it comes out, it's kind of, we, you know, we eat it for Thanksgiving dinner all the time, but we also eat it for breakfast the next day because it's got the sausage in it. Um, And the original recipe called for it to be done in a, pan lined with parchment and these days that course it goes back since before there were any kind of you know teflon pans or no stick pans so you can do it if you want to or not oh, that, that sounds sound? so delicious oh my gosh <laughs> and i just do it in a you know a, a loaf pan uh, a teflon lined loaf pan and what you're going to do you have to press it into the pan really good and then put the pan the loaf pan inside of a larger pan of hot water and it just goes into the hour into the oven at three fifty for an hour. That and could be easier. <laughs> it could, and especially for holidays where you're maybe doing sausage anyway, like to stuff a turkey with or something like that to do the dressing. I just you know do the extra um, pound of sausage to go in there. Oh wow! And I could see that, and then maybe decorate around it with some of those cute little Romanesco broccolis. Yes. We, traditionally, we do it with buttered carrots around the edges, but I would think that maybe a combination, because it, you know, it's, it comes out basically greenish brown, and it needs a little color. But I would think that some of those little Romanescos and and um, some carrots would be kind of good. What else might you put around it? You're more creative than I am. Well, of course, you can always add peppers. <laughs> 
Get a little red tuck in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see doing that. I could see. Now, would you cook the peppers, or would you like to leave them? Well, I, I like the idea of of buttered buttered carrots, buttered romanesco, and and actually maybe some. Uh, yeah, I would probably cook them. I would probably roast some peppers down, and you know, I like to roast my peppers in uh, an olive oil honey glaze, and so that would that would kind of give it a little extra sweet pop. We've got a minute and a couple seconds. Tell me about this glaze that you do. Oh, it's a fantastic thing. You just, you just roast them on a sheet with a little sugar and um, a, a little salt, a little olive oil, and a, a good a good pouring of honey, which I actually get from Georgia at Brushwood Nursery. Uh, they have a, a wonderful honey uh, honey hive there, a bee hive there, and they do a great job with their honey seasonally. I, I never would have thought about honey on peppers. Of course, I roast peppers sometimes, you know, with, with garlic and olive oil. Uh, but I wouldn't have thought to use honey on it. That's a fantastic idea. Honey helps centralize that, that heat. Ah, so you'd be doing this with hot peppers. I do it with all peppers because uh, I like that, that sort of surprise sweetness. But it definitely helps on hot peppers, especially if you haven't heated them. Hmm. Well, <laughs> a, a seeded a, a pepper, hot pepper with seeds in it would never touch my plate. <laughs> we have to take a little bit of a break here, but I want to remind you that we're li- you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. And when we come back, I would like to talk to you about your Thanksgiving menu. We'll be right back after this. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com. Brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking this week to Bree Arthur, um, and we're just about to talk about Bree's special menu. You are doing something absolutely incredible. Tell us about it. Well, inspired from my trip to Denmark last month, where I visited a biodynamic farm that sells only the Michelin star restaurants, uh, which, you know, of course, our restaurants is a uh, very high standard, but often not very much food <laughs> in each of their <laughs> courses. 
<laughs> so I decided that we would be celebrating this year with a, a bit of pretension, which um, is really only meant to be in, in good fun. Uh, so I've put together a six-course menu that is all uh, primarily from the garden. And, of course, it's all local and organic. Um, so the the nuts and the meats and things that are added um, are, are really meant to uh, give people a wide variety of flavors uh, without filling them up too much. <laughs> and so what's on your menu? Well, we're starting with a course of spicy greens. So it will be a bed of arugula with sliced radishes and some uh, hard-boiled egg slices. And then I've made a pepper glaze relish that I have uh, I have preserved that will kind of edge the plates uh, in a very uh, artistic way, as these restaurants are known for having little dollops of different liquids. <laughs> mm-hmm. And each of these uh, will be paired with a different wine. And so the the opening the opening spicy greens will be paired with a. Uh, light and citrusy prosecco, and of course, I think with the arugula, I'll probably add some spicy mustard greens as well, just to give it, you know, a dynamic oh flavor. Yeah, really kind of you are gonna, palate. <laughs> you're you're really going to wake them up, aren't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then the second course is going to actually be cooked greens. Um, you know, kale is such the in the in plant, and I, I love that it's something that I think nurseries are now calling the gateway to the millennials. Um, it has you know a, a high rate high ratio of vitamin D, and it can be prepared in a lot of ways. And we love kale chips, which is one of the easiest things you can do with it. You just slice it. I like to throw it in a in a plastic bag with olive oil and. Um, Rub that olive oil in so that all of the pieces are covered, and then bake it at 400 for, you know, 15 minutes, and they come out crunchy and delicious, just like a potato chip, but much better for you. So our second course is called Garden Crisp, and it's going to be kale greens and um, some fried plantain with a buttermilk ranch dressing. Um, yeah, so, of course, some of the Michelin-starred uh, restaurants have actually started serving directly on the table surface. So this is going to be a, an experiment in that regard. We are going to be plateless for this course, and it will be served dumped in, in mass in front of each person, and then they use their fingers to eat this, oh. to eat this course. Oh, <laughs> okay, in Hawaii. <laughs> And then the wine pairing for that is a Pinot Grigio, a white Pinot Grigio. Ooh, my favorite. So then the, the, the third course I have called the Taste of Summer, and it's uh, predominantly because I had so many tomatoes that I, that I preserved this year. So it's going to be a soup course of roasted peppers and tomato soup. And we'll add a dollop of fresh ricotta, which is local here in Fuquay, and then a slice of cheddar cheese on the side. And, of course, this is one of my signatures for for the winter. I actually preserve 75 pints of 
roasted pepper and tomato soup, so I need to start getting rid of it, frankly. <laughs> um, so I'm thrilled to be able to share this one because a lot of times people just have tomato soup, and actually the, the roasted peppers really add a great have depth of flavor, and they're not spicy at all. It just, um, I think it makes tomato, it's a great pairing to the tomato, and it, because I grow so many non-red tomatoes, sometimes my tomato soup can look a little odd, and adding red peppers kind of <laughs> makes it that really bright red, authentic color. I, I can see that in my mind's eye, because one year I made gazpacho out of yellow brandy wines. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a little, little odd. You know, it was it's very funny. Tasty. They'll taste great, but unless you're doing a blind tasting, people always choose the red sauce. It's uncanny how that happens. <laughs> it, it is. It absolutely is. I'm fortunate to have a husband that will try almost anything, which is good when I make purple potato salad. <laughs> yes. Yes, you need that. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate in that my husband will at least try everything once. And he isn't afraid of color because he knows that being an heirloom enthusiast, I often gravitate towards the things that are as, as far away from what you can find at the grocery store as possible. In fact, last year we only had orange and purple cauliflower. We didn't have any white cauliflower the whole season. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Now, do you grow all your cauliflower, or do you um, get it at the farmer's market? No, I, I do grow it all, um, you know, again, in mass. And, and, of course, in in these heading vegetables, I try to grow them so that I will have them for each month of the winter. And so that does take a lot of preparation, not only in your seeding, but in your planting schedule and then in your overwintering schedule. So we'll have quite a few tunnels throughout our garden by January. <laughs> okay. What, what else? Now, we, we talked about your, your interesting soup. What else are you going to have? Well, so the main course, which is the fourth course of this menu, which is uh, derived from a kind of the way uh, Danish meals are presented, is a grilled pork tenderloin with homemade applesauce that uh, came from apples out of Virginia on my way home from Charlottesville in September. And I cannot wait to, uh, to eat this. This is actually the course that inspired this entire meal um, with a wedge of, of Dutch Gouda that a friend of mine will be bringing to the IPPS meeting uh, this weekend. Who He lives in Gouda, which in the Netherlands is actually Kouda. <laughs> so it's great to be able to share authentic Dutch with friends and family. And by this course, we've switched to red. This is a Merlot pairing uh, for grilled pork tenderloin. Now, tell me what you do to your tenderloin. Besides, do you grill it outside or do you grill it in the bro under the broiler or what do you We do? grill it outside. This is the one chore that David will have for this meal is preparing pork tenderloin. And I'm so fortunate to have a, a wonderful uh, local organic farmer um, that that sells smaller cuts of meat, so I don't actually have to buy an entire pig. Uh, I can go to him and say, I'm throwing a dinner party and this is what I need. Um, so I've, I'm really fortunate in that regard. And, and we prepare it just with a little bit of olive oil and um, 
freshly ground pepper. We keep it as simple as possible. And I think pairing it with applesauce, pork and apples always go well together, and it's so iconic for this season. You're so lucky to have real pork, uh, you know, that's going to have flavor in it so that you can do it simply. And so much of the stuff that you get at the store these days is just kind of, you know, you really need to knock it up with some spices. Yes, you do. You know, and we're really fortunate here. I I think, you know, North Carolina is a a large producer of pork products. But even at our farmer's market, uh, local farmers will will be there with their meat products, which is a wonderful addition to, you know, having fresh produce. I think having local organic meat is really important um, because it's not well represented in the grocery stores. Uh, so I hope that that's a trend that will only grow and, and continue to be a resource uh, to support local farmers, not just produce people, but but animal farmers as well. Yeah, and, and it's hard for them to make a living sometimes because people kind of balk at the price. They know that they're paying, say, three ninety nine a pound at the grocery store, and they wonder why this is eight ninety nine a pound. But then when they taste it, they will know the difference. Absolutely. And I think the farmer's market, um, you're already, you know, kind of capturing an audience that is prioritizing local and organic. And so the places there don't, aren't, well, obviously, there isn't anything to compare it to. So it's an easier sell. Um, and I think when you're looking at that farmer in the eye and you know that they have a mortgage and they, they have responsibilities in life just like you do, it's easier to understand why their product costs more and why why it's worth the price. Um, and I, that's a, that's I think a very that's a wonderful point. part of the local farmers markets that are popping up now everywhere. And I am so happy that young people are getting on the you know the wanting the taste of real food now, so that there's a chance to support these small farmers. And that, that is no longer a trend. That's just a reality. Um, and I'm so glad about it. You know, in 2007, when, when the market sort of crashed and people started going to edible gardening and the horticulture industry was really kind of leery about it and they kept calling it a trend and trends don't last and trends are, are fickle. And, and I kept thinking, well, I sure hope it's not a trend because the food that we have access to right now is really subpar. And, it's being proven now over and over again by, you know, younger people and certainly millennials. This is what they do prioritize. It's something that that isn't going to go away, and it's something that the industry needs to fully recognize and, and embrace. Uh, within 10 years, the, the consumer is going to have very different priorities compared to the main consumer now. Yep, there's a lot of difference between baby boomers and millennials. There is, and um, you know, recent recent statistics are showing that the millennials are actually twice the number in population. So, uh, you know, when when they are in a position of having you know an expendable income and are living you know a life of their own, it's an enormous market that's going to have to be uh, accommodated. And now is the time to start preparing for that. Well, I certainly hope that more and more people will take up small farming and organic farming. I'm, I'm very happy to see. I won't call it a trend, <laughs> but, but I'm very happy to see it. 
because I really thought we were going to lose it after the 70s. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that the ornamental horticulture is definitely changing. Um, I think it's great that people are embracing edibles as a form of ornamental horticulture. And I'm sure there will be a time when gardenias and, and azaleas are, are embraced by millennials, but now is not that time. <laughs> they embrace chard and peppers a lot more. <laughs> yes, they do. Well, and I started out as a food grower, too. We're going to have to take another break right now, but um, when we come back, I'd like to hear about the rest of your courses, um, and then I would also like to talk to you about that fascinating article that I read a little while ago about the changing face of horticulture. Yeah. Quick stakes, that's Q-U-I-K stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today I'm talking to Bree Arthur, and right before the break she was telling us about her Michelin star dinner party that she's going to go. We got through the pork course. That's right. So we're into the the final stages, and of course, no dinner can be complete without a cheese and nut selection, right? Right. <laughs> and this is the season of pecans in the south. So we have a nice assortment of uh, pecans that are all local. Some are salted, some are sweet, and then some are roasted just plain. And um, paired with all local organic cheeses with brie, Colby, um, goat cheeses. And this course is paired with champagne, which is my favorite uh, drink of choice. And it's a great way uh, to sort of prepare the guest palate for that dessert course, which this year is going, it's called Tropical Decadence. And it's courtesy of my local bakery, and every November they start to make the world's most delicious coconut cake. It's oh. six layers, and it's sort of an unexpected treat. Everybody always anticipates, you know, pumpkin pie or apple pie. 
So this is meant to be one of those throwbacks uh, to the midsummer, and uh, this coconut cake just melts in your mouth, and it's so delightful. Um, and of course, I pair that with um, an assortment of sorbets. Um, and strawberry does tend to be the favorite paired with the coconut cake. This has become a tradition in my family. Actually, for Christmas, my dad requests now a coconut cake from Stick Boy Bakery every Christmas. <laughs> oh. Now, tell me about your tell me about your sorbets. Do you make them yourself? No, I don't make them myself. We have a wonderful sorbet um, supplier at the North Carolina State Farmers Market. And um, it's a real treat to get to go up there with this purpose. And then, of course, they sneak in some other delightful organic treats and often plants while I'm up there. Uh, but it is my kind of excuse to run up to the, to the state farmer's market, which I don't get to visit all that frequently, um, and, and support their local business. I've only been at the North Carolina farmer's market once. And that was with a Garden Writers Association um, symposium tour a few years ago. And but I was just blown away by how much is there. Isn't it incredible? I can't believe that I didn't meet you at that meeting because I was there as well. Uh, but the State well, Farmers there were Market. There a lot of us in <laughs> That's true. It's a, it's a very well-attended meeting. Uh, the State Farmers Market is such a great resource Um you know, it's big, it's year-round, it's seven days a week. You never really have to question, is it open or not? And um, it's right off of the highway. So it, it's a it's a great resource for people that are even just driving through Raleigh on the way to the coast or other places. Now, you mentioned going up to Charlottesville. Where? What were you doing in Charlottesville? Well, it was my first venture with Going to Greener World, and they were there filming for the Heritage Harvest Festival, uh, which is, I think, in their sixth year, and it's a wonderful festival that celebrates uh, the heritage of growing food at Monticello. And so they had about 6,000 visitors and two days' worth of educational programs and demonstrations and uh, delightful food vendors and petting zoo and all, all things that you could imagine. And um, it was such a great time. And, of course, it was the um, middle of September, so it was prime apple season. I used to love traveling at this time of year because you could get so many wonderful things from the roadside stands, boiled peanuts and fresh apples of all different kinds. Now, one of the things that has impressed me about Jefferson and also going out to Williamsburg is all the ways that they protect crops early and, and late in the season. That are so, are so, a big assortment of bell jars and different cloches and stuff like that. Did you find anything like that at Monticello? I did. Quite a lot to be envied. <laughs> they, you know, they have one of the most incredible food gardens that I've ever witnessed. And um, they have, you know, a lot of their plants are in nice long rows, so they're easy to cover. Uh, but their bell jars are so incredible. I would, I wish they were selling them there. I would have filled my Prius up with bell jars. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm 
it never ceases to amaze me how far advanced these people were a few hundred years ago. And we're just now getting back to growing undercover um, and protecting our plants so that we can have an extended season. I love seeing that trend. You know what's amazing when 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 Joe was filming segments um, during this this venture up at Monticello, it ca- he kept saying, you know, in Thomas Jefferson's age, organic farming it was just the way you farmed, and it's strange mm-hmm. that now it's such a catchphrase um, that now we're kind of trying to go back to what they were doing, and it seems not necessarily intuitive because of the introduction of synthetic fertilizers and mechanized advancements. And that's really what kept resonating in my mind, thinking, well, if you just read his advice, (laughs) you'll know exactly how to be a grower now and get the nutrition that you need and not have, you know, certainly the the overspray of petroleum-based products that um, certainly aren't adding to the health value of the crop. And with Jefferson, we have the advantage that he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. He took notes on everything, didn't he? Yes, he did. Uh, what an incredible resource, and thankfully they've been preserved. Um, this was my first trip to Monticello, and wow, I think that that will require a yearly pilgrimage. Uh, it's one of the most incredible gardens that you'll ever visit. And the staff there is just, they're so enlightened in, in how they grow and how they rotate and they grow everything from seed and they sell the seed, they actually collect the seed from their garden and then sell it so that you can take a literal piece of Monticello home. Do I remember correctly that the purple hyacinth bean vine that was all the rage 10 years ago, did that come from there? I believe it did, yes. I think it did, too. Um, and the structures yeah. that they grow the beans on are ridiculously charming. It's all branches from, you know, different orchard trees. And, you know, it's all meant to be decomposed and recreated every year. It's such an inspiration to see. You know, one of the things that has impressed me looking at some old farms and old farm pictures and recreated ones like at Williamsburg and and that is to see how they used pea stakes and, you know, orchard prunings and things like that, that we now think that we have to go out and buy a trellis. Exactly. And very often it's plastic or something like that, and it looks hideous. But we can take all those things out of our garden. And another thing that, that I noticed is that we don't make use of hotbeds. We use cold frames sometimes. But those old boys would fill the beds up with manure, get it starting to break down, and plant in it and let the heat of decomposition keep their plants warm. That is so true. And, you know, just this weekend I had a discussion uh, with some neighbors of mine because I pretty much every weekend have two yards of some sort of substrate to put out in my garden, whether it's compost or mulch or ground leaves. And I was saying just that, do you see all the heat coming off of this? You know, this is a great, this is a great strategy for uh, keeping our space warmer and explaining to my seven-year-old neighbor why heat comes off of decomposing green material. Actually, that seven-year-old seems to have a pretty good idea of 
the understanding of how plants break down. <laughs> maybe maybe his class needs to start uh, teaching these elements so that they have it in their minds so that when they're uh, at the age of having a house and starting the garden, they have it intuitively. Yeah, because your generation really missed, not you in particular because you had family that garden, but your, a lot of your generation missed learning from the previous generation, didn't you? Absolutely. It certainly was not in the school programs at all, so it's thrilled to see that. I really attribute 4-H. Um, though my grandparents were great gardeners, you know, they lived two states away. It was not like I was getting to visit them every weekend and help in the garden. But it was 4-H that really gave me a lot of education um, and motivation. Uh, everybody likes to have an end goal, and the county fair was a great place to have an end goal where you could enter flowers and vegetables and compete with your peers. And I'm so thankful that 4-H was there for me. I was one of the only non-farmers in my group, and horticulture gave me a purpose. Um, and so I, I actively try to engage new young people in 4-H programs. I think what they do is so valuable, uh, not only for horticulture, but for agriculture in general. And for building life skills. One of the things that we are seeing a lot um, in our county is a lot of kids' gardening programs. I had started one here in, I think it was probably 1990 or 91, as a newly mentored master gardener. And we ended up in uh, just a few years, we had over a 1,000 kids in four schools. And now we have probably close to 30 schools in the county, and I would say at least half of them have gardening programs of some variety or another. Well, I think the industry is realizing that because there's been several generations lapsing as hobby gardeners, we have to introduce young people early so that they have it as a skill throughout their whole life. And it's here in Raleigh, the J.C. Walton Arboretum uh, has just started a children's gardening program. Um, it was was uh, created by the most recent director, Dr. Ted Bilderback, who just retired. And my husband and I have been actively fundraising for that program. Um, and it's, it's just so exciting that this is a new program that's being so embraced, not only by the existing members of the Ralston Arboretum, but by a whole new population of you know, parents in their 30s with young children, and then they're bringing in the schools, and, and it's it's really increasing um, the number of people who visit the Arboretum and, and their appreciation of ornamentals and edibles. I'm, I'm very happy to see that. Um, and I wanted to tell people that if they need some guidance on where to go to get lesson plans, if you want to start a program in your own school or work with your kids, I can be happy. I'd be happy to provide those for you. Because there's, there's just a wealth of information out there, starting with the very basic information that we used um, 25 years ago and going on towards now where they've got more and more standard curriculum. Bree, it's been just amazing fun to talk to you again today, and I hope you'll come back with us sometime. Maybe we can talk about starting plants from seed and things like that in the spring. How does that sound? That sounds delightful. It is such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I've been enjoy just enjoying it immensely. And, Bree, when are you going to write a book? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'd love to write a book on all things heirlooms. So 
<laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. I will look forward to that. And I hope that you will look forward to returning with us next week when we're talking more gardening here on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll see you next week.